you want to open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, I'd like to talk about the word awesome this morning. It's a, it's a word we hear, uh, it's a word we say, and I'd like to show you from the scriptures what is truly awesome. And the next time someone, uh, when they talk about a ride at some theme park or about some ice cream cone they just had or, you know, some song they just heard and say, that's really awesome, say, you know what? I'd like to tell you about something that's really awesome and give them a perspective from the scriptures. But awesome in the 21st century is a little bit less than it is described in the Bible. Actually, that word is used as one of the names describing our God, and especially that which surrounds our God. Uh, particularly awesome is when God is presented in, in such a sense of wonder that it borders on those that experience the sight of him on fear. They are variously described when they see the awesome majesty of God as feeling like they're melting, disintegrating, or are undone. And it is such an overwhelming sense of power that it causes us to realize how insignificant we are. And there's kind of a, a shrinking back because of the awesome majesty. It's an overpowering sense of God's glory that could be felt. So we say this morning, our God, the God we're worshiping, the God we're reading his word, and the God whose throne we're going to describe this morning from his word is an awesome God. And when he is portrayed in scripture, he is surrounded with what can only be described as awesome. Well, with that in mind, Romans chapter 14. Paul is writing the book of Romans, most likely from Corinth. It's somewhere in the second half of the 50s, about 56 maybe AD, that Paul's sitting in Corinth. He's writing to a fledgling church that he's hoping to visit. He wants to go there. And as he's writing to them, he's seeking a way he could encourage them. That's how he starts the book. Romans 1, Paul said, I want to encourage you by coming to you and by ministering to you, and I want to be encouraged by your lives ministering to me. He was very humble, didn't think that he was the paragon of, of encouragement. It was mutual, but he wanted to help them in their spiritual lives. They lived with all the daily load of life in Rome. Plus, they had to put up with the general excitement that surrounded anybody that lived in the city of Rome. I think for most of us, we've, we've heard the uh, quintessential description of the Roman Empire in the little statement. You've all heard it. All roads lead to what? Yeah. That idea that all roads lead to Rome was because Rome was the epicenter of the empire, and as the Roman legions radiated outward from the, the city of Rome, they built Roman roads. As they went out to conquer, as they went out to subjugate, as they went out to put the perimeter further and further, they built those carefully constructed roads. But what resulted from that was that as the empire widened, coming back down those roads, were an endless stream of the newest, the latest, and the greatest. And so think of what it would have been like to be sitting through life where every road of every interesting thing in the world was flowing by you every day. And that's what 
daily life in ancient Rome was all about. There was no grander place of buildings. There was no larger display of power than Rome. There was no more place of greater fascination than the city of Rome. Why? Because every day something new arrived. Either an army was coming back from conquest or a caravan was bringing something from some very distant place that was going to be distributed, sold, or enjoyed in Rome. Or there was breaking news of some far-off place or some new event, some new triumph. There were endless distractions that flowed down all those roads that led to Rome. Now remember, Paul is trying to encourage these people to what chapter 12 is all about. And chapter 12 is all about that that God saved us, and the first 11 chapters are the doctrinal underpinnings of salvation. But chapter 12 said we were saved not to sit, not to, to do nothing, to be inert. We were saved, Romans 12 says, to offer ourselves back to God as his servant slaves, as living sacrifices. But you know, living in Rome, it was easy to get distracted. You know, it reminds us kind of what we live in today. Did you know that today, because of the internet, no longer do all roads lead to Rome, all roads lead to us. We can experience everything that's going on all over the world, right from wherever we are at any moment. And the possibility for distraction is greater than it's ever been since this time of all roads leading to Rome. In fact, I think our potential for distraction is greater because it was only the the people that were in Rome that were distracted. Now all of us have all roads leading to us and we're all tempted with distraction. Via the internet, all roads can now lead to us, and there's hardly anything going on anywhere that isn't a click away. And the river that flowed into Rome brought good and bad information just as the river that flows to us can bring good, edifying, encouraging, or bad, distracting, or even worse, defiling. Well, the choice is how to keep focused by battling distractions, and that's what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 14. He is talking to them about how they should live their lives. And after explaining salvation in chapter 1 through 11, after explaining in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that because Christ saved us, we are to serve him, Paul goes on in chapter 14, and and just follow along in your Bible, starting in verse 10, as Paul says, guard what you do with your life because you have an appointment. And in Romans 14.10, Paul explains that the pathway of blessing comes only to those that respond to God. Those who in chapter 12 consecrate themselves as servants back to God. Those who in chapter 13 are submissive to the order that God has put around them. And those in chapter 14 that keep their eye on the appointment they're headed toward. And that's what he talks about in 10 through 12. And this is what he says. It says, but why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother, verse 10? What's he talking about? He's talking about questionable things. In chapter 14, it talks about the gray areas, the areas that some people have greater convictions and some people have lesser convictions. And and the greater conviction are always trying to impose their convictions on the lesser conviction, and the lesser convictions are always flaunting their freedom and liberty. And there's this give and take that goes on in the church, which causes what Paul talks about in verse 10. Why do you judge the one with a stronger 
convictions. It's judging everybody that doesn't have them. And why do you show contempt, the one that feels their liberty is, has contempt for the one that's in such bondage? Why do you do that, Paul says? Look at the end in verse 10. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. First thing Paul's saying is, let the Lord deal with them. Don't you worry about them. Worry about yourself. Because verse 11 says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess. What he's saying is the judgment is very personal. It's not knees. It's, it's your knees. It's not tongues. It's your tongue. And verse 12, this is what he says. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, Paul spent a great amount of time talking about and teaching about that event of when each of us come before God. And what he said is, to keep from getting distracted, from, to keep from getting your life wasted with all that's going on in Rome, with those rivers of excitement coming towards you, keep your eye on that awesome scene of someday standing before the Lord, his throne, and giving an account of how you lived your life. He said that's very sobering because that's very awesome. So basically what Paul says is the destination of each of us in Christ is that we are heading to that throne. We have an appointment that Paul says will either make us ashamed or confident. He said, I am confident at his coming. And John added, and I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. So it's a, it's a choice we make. What remains of our life there someday will be whatever glorified him. Remember, sins will be removed, wasted life in all the distractions of Rome back then and of basically the cyber world today, will be burned out of our life, and whatever is left after all the, the wasted life and distraction and after sin has already been removed through the cross, whatever is left is what part of our life, what part of our time, what part of our schedule, what part of our, of our energies were devoted to what glorifies God. Now, what can glorify God? Well, the Scriptures say, whether therefore you eat or drink, what? Do all to the glory of God. Actually, we can make every part of life glorify Him if we're a living sacrifice and submitted to do his will. But Paul said, I want you to realize either your actions are pleasing or displeasing to him. Verse 12, you're going to give an account to him, period. And that's the test. We don't get to redo life when we get to heaven. You know, I just love those little, you know, redo arrows. Go back or go forward. You know, on your computer, you can type along and, and oop, and you delete a whole paragraph and you just go, oop, let's redo that. Let's go back. And, and then you have, you know, all these programs that, that store your information going into the past. And you can say, wow, I, I want it like it was three months ago. I want to go back to there. And you just go back and you just start over again. At the judgment seat of Christ, we don't get to redo. Hit that little back button. Say, whoa, sorry, I want to try that over again. No. He says, we're going to give an account of whether my actions pleased or displeased him. It's too late once we get before him. The blessings of God are tied to me getting focused and not distracted from what matters now. So how did Paul do that? Verses 10 through 12 of Romans 14. 
he said, you got an appointment. Live every day like you're getting ready for the awesome appointment. Live for what will matter then. Well, why does God put the spotlight on the throne? Why does it say every knee, verse 11, is going to bow, speaking of his lordship and his majesty? Why does he say every tongue is going to give an account? Why does God put such emphasis on the throne? Because the throne speaks of a king. And a king has authority and power to rule that we either yield to or not. That's really the essence of the glorifying God. Either we yield to his rule, his desires for us, his word, his will revealed, or we don't. And we don't either by blatantly rejecting it or just by neglecting it. Either way is not doing it. And we were created for good works to do his will. And because God is the sovereign majesty who reigns over all as the supreme ruler, he is king over all, it is he who controls and upholds all things, and he wants us to remember that. That's why the, the word throne occurs many times in the scripture. In fact, of the, of the 60 or so times that it's in scripture, more than half of them are right here in the book of Revelation, where we're going. The book of Revelation, if you looked at a, a pie chart or a, a, a graph, bar graph, of the occurrences of throne, you would see throne here and there, and all of a sudden in Revelation you'd see a skyscraper of 39 occurrences. And this is the place where God says, I want you to think of my throne overshadowing every part of your life. As we see God and the throne room of the universe... As we see God as the majesty on high, the almighty, the ancient of days, as we see him, our hearts are struck by the awesomeness. And we start pulling back and saying, whoa, how great you are and how much I want to honor you as my king, as my Lord, as my master, as my savior. Well, we need to listen to the scriptures as they focus us on what Paul was trying to do right here. When he talked about this appointment in verses 10, 11, and 12, this was just what he wrote. In person, he taught immensely. Remember, his sermons used to go all night till people were falling out the windows. He was so overwhelmed with the majesty and the awesomeness of God. So I'd like to just read some of the verses that Paul would have taught from, from the Old Testament, and then some of the verses that Paul and John wrote in the New Testament that describe the awesomeness of where we're headed. And as I read these verses, I want you to think as you picture them in your mind, what it's going to be like that in that scene, we're going to verse 12. Look at it again. Romans 14, 12, so then each of us, this is only born-again believers, the throne for the lost is in Revelation 20. I'm not going to describe that this morning. I'm only talking about four believers. This is a gathering of the body of Christ this morning. Primarily here this morning, we have all surrendered to him. We're all, the born-again ones, are going to verse 12. We are going to give an account of my life to God. And this is the awesome destination where we're going to give that. This is what heaven looks like. And I'm going to be, I won't give you the references now, but I'm reading chronologically, starting with the earliest writings about heaven all the way through to the last. 
And here is what the Scriptures say. It's one of the most amazing descriptions of where we're going that I've ever found, starting with the earliest book. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed in awesome majesty. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning with fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes were white as light. He is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. For he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of hosts, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. For he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And when he had purified our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For our God is a consuming fire. And you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable host of angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ, before all ages, and one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, with the hairs of his head white, white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And then I saw a throne standing in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. 
And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, and around the throne, and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes, in front and behind. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And the city did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, with those scriptures, we see captured for us the sight of heaven. Basically, heaven is the centerpiece of the throne of God. Heaven is variously described, but the size given us is a 1,500-mile by 1,500-mile footprint, with the center of it being the throne and the concentric circles surrounding the throne on this glassy sea. Now, a 1,500 by 1,500-mile heaven, the footprint, if we actually were under the throne this morning, the throne of God in the center in the city, the heavenly city radiating outward from it, would put to the east all the way to New York City, to the west all the way to Oklahoma, to the north all the way, the north, all the way to about Hudson's Bay and to the south all the way to Atlanta would be the footprint of the 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles if we were in the center. But what we're looking at this morning, by the way, it would go 1,500 miles high. You know, some of the tallest buildings in the world are about 1,500 feet or a little more. If you put the former World Trade Center, 5,000 World Trade Centers on top of each other would be the height of the heavenly city stretching to Oklahoma, New York City, Hudson's Bay, and Atlanta. Unbelievable. Huge. But just this morning, let's focus on what is going on around the throne and think of just the size of that. Because around the throne, when we get to heaven, we'll see the same scene we've seen through John's eyes in Revelation. His inspired words portray for us a scene of angels, hundreds of millions of them, with 10,000 times 10,000, all clustered around the smooth crystal sea that reflects some images from its mirror-like surface of the fire, of the lightning, of the voices, of the flashes. Our senses are besieged by so many different sensations. Just the colors are beyond description, and John has trouble capturing them. But basically, the traditional description of a rainbow is that it's made up of seven colors. And it says that there's a rainbow surrounding the throne. The seven colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. But actually, the rainbow is a whole continuum of colors from red to violet, and even beyond colors our human eyes can see. 
Remember, there's so much of the spectrum we can't see. And probably in heaven we'll see the whole spectrum. But a cool emerald green hue dominates the multicolored rainbow surrounding God's throne. And the city that surrounds us with, with the 1,500 miles high is a sparkling diamond. To get the sensation, just hold up a diamond ring to your eye. And as you turn, let the light capture its brilliance. And think about being surrounded by diamonds that are big enough to build with and that are refracting and reflecting the light. Multiply the diamonds large enough to build walls out of and make an entire city that's over 1,500 miles high and then look down beneath your feet and see gold that is transparent that is so overpowering and radiance that God's glory refracts and glistens through the entire city with no other lights needed. Unbelievable to think of the light and the intensity But think of everything made of gems of such beautiful colors that send forth the light of God's glory. Just the 12 foundation stones, the colors of those, out of which the city is seated upon, are these hues. The stones are sky blue with translucent colored stripes, parallel layers of red and white, orange red to brownish red to blood red stones, a transparent yellowish gold, a light blue aquamarine, a yellowish green, an apple green, and a gold tinted green, a deep blue, a shining violet, and the last stone is intensely purple with gold flakes glistening in it. And those are just the foundation stones. The size is astounding because with just an average platform, if you took the size of this little platform that's jutting out here that I'm standing on and gave that amount of space to every one of the angels, just the angels that are standing around God, and gave them enough space that they could spread out their arms, just the area around the throne is 38,000 square miles. Inside this huge 1,500-mile by 1,500-mile square, if we were under the throne right now, 38,000 square miles, is just about the area of Michigan. So think of Michigan in a circle around us if we were at the center. And think of the entire state of Michigan, all 38,000 square miles, and it would all be glass, clear crystal. And standing are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of angels. But between them and the throne is a circle of 24 elders, which most likely represents where we're going to be standing. The angels, us, the 24, the fire, the throne. Very large. That's awesome. And that's what God describes for us. And we think of this enormous area, but no matter what the size may be, just the sight is hard for us to take. But then, going from verse 12 of Romans 14, standing there, let's see what we'll see starting in Revelation chapter 4. If you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, that's where we're going to conclude this morning. And I want you to look with me at what it will look like when we finally stand before the throne. Because John gives us all of the pictures I read 
put in a beautiful sequence so that we can see before we get there what it's going to be like. That's what he wanted the Romans to do. He said, you want to keep from getting distracted by wasting your life with the latest thing coming down the road? Keep your eye on your appointment. Keep your eye on where you're going to stand to give account. And this is what he says. When we finally stand before the throne, above us and over our heads are the living creatures, and above them hangs an an awesome sky, sparkling like ice, framed in jewels, and the emerald green throne, chapter 4 describes. And on the throne sits one who has the appearance of glowing jasper, and before him the lamb, looking like he had been slain. The first thing we'll see in verse 5 as we arrive in heaven is we'll see the throne of God. First, we see central to heaven, God's throne completely encircled by that emerald green rainbow that is over, around, and beneath. If you think about it, a rainbow is probably 360. It's just the land stops it. If there was no land, there would be a 360-degree rainbow. And with the crystal floor, most likely the throne of God has the rainbow going in its completion around it, what we would call a halo. But around the throne and beneath the throne, and we're overwhelmed not only by the sight, but by the massive rumble of power as endless peals of thunder and flashes of lightning seem to radiate. Look what it says in verse 5 of chapter 4. From the throne proceed lightnings, thunderings, voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits. And listening carefully, we hear with John loud voices like roaring waterfalls, rolling past those seven blazing pillars of flame that burn in a circle around the throne. In fact, an exiled Jewish prophet, his name was Daniel, in chapter 7 says, He watched the throne, and the Ancient of Days was seated there, and his garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was a fiery flame, and it had circles of fire burning like wheels, And a fiery stream flowed from before him. First, we'll see the throne. Second, verse 6 says, we'll see the sea of glass. And next, we'll notice there's a floor, if we could call it that. It's an ocean of completely clear and reflective crystal glass. And in this crystal sea, we can see all the colors, all the lights, and all the objects reflected, but they're amplified. Because it says the light radiates out of them like out of crystal because verse 6 says before the throne is a sea of glass like crystal thirdly in verse 6 at the end we see living burning ones now they're described in Isaiah 6 as seraphs which are burning they're described in Ezekiel and John as cherubs so they're Cherubs means living. Seraph means burning. So they're, they're living, burning ones. Isaiah says that they're above the throne, and they have six wings, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. And as our eyes follow them, we see in verse 6 
that in the midst of the throne and around the throne are four living creatures. They're full of eyes in front and in back. Verse 7 says, the, the first living creature is like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like, had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Verse 8, the four living creatures each have six wings and they're full of eyes around and within, and they don't rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And as they move, it says, they move like flashes of light. And they are fiery and they, they move like lightning. And fire passes between them as they glide through the expanse around the Ancient of Days. And basically, their orbit could be described as theocentric. God is in the center and they're orbiting around God. And then... Verse 9 says in Revelation 4, the next thing our eyes will settle on are the 24 elders. Because as we watch, we go from the throne and then from the angels with lightning around the throne, and then we see it all reflected in the sea. But then as we start noticing, we see, as it says in the ninth verse, that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. And as we watch the 24 elders rise and fall under the ex awesome expanse of space, like crystal, sparkling, pure, like a crystal blue pavement, as it's called in Exodus. But on that pavement is a circle just beyond the burning pillars and we see 24 small thrones with robes celestial beings sitting on them. And it says in verse 10, And the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and cast their crowns before the throne. Crowns? The Bible says crowns are gauged on five tests. Each crown in the scripture is a test of whether a portion of our life was harnessed for the glory of God. Remember he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for my glory. And if you do it for his glory with his church, there's the faithful shepherd's crown. If you do it for his glory with the lost, there's the soul winner's crown, turning many to righteousness. If you, if you harness your body for his glory, there's the, the crown that the Lord gives to those who who constrain their bodies, as Paul put it, that, that he wanted to beat down his flesh so it wouldn't dominate. He wouldn't live for his appetites. He'd live for the glory of God. And there's a crown for people that master their desires and bring them into submission for Christ. And there's also a crown for those that love Christ's appearing and don't get distracted by this world and, and, and by the river that comes through. And then there's a crown for those who, who suffer and, and get the crown of life because they suffer for the cause of Christ. But Jesus said that all those crowns are just the gifts that we gave him by our life, by the good works we were designed to do for his glory, that he gives back to us as a crown that we get to, look what it says in verse 10, cast their crowns before the throne and as they cast their crowns, we 
most likely will also, saying in verse 11, that you are worthy, O Lord. You are worth living life for. You are worth denying the flesh for. You are worth suffering adversity for. You are worth investing in the church for. You are worth bringing my body into subjection and not living for whatever I want to live for and squashed into by the world. But you're worthy, verse 11, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. By your will they exist and were created. It's interesting. The scriptures describe these 24 as each holding a harp, each wearing a crown, each having a golden bowl. And the bowl is the collected worship of the saints. And that worship is offered to God. And repeatedly we see those 24 elders fall on their faces and pouring out to the Lord the worship of the saints and the hosts of heaven loudly chant. Look at verse 8. With the mighty sound of seraphim and cherubim wings, we hear the voices, the thunders, and the sounds of the whole universe in one crystal clear affirmation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Finally, when you look a little bit beyond the 24 elders, and most likely the saints. Beyond them, stretching out as far as we can see, look at chapter 5, verse 11, we'll see the countless angels. The angels will capture our attention. They are countless white-robed angels standing like living walls of pure white linen, rising in circular rings, reflecting the light of God. They rise and fall to the sounds of the four creatures that crisscross the expanse across the four corners of the throne. They move the angels like one, falling down on their faces as they speak the wonders of God's glory. Verse 11 says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. But finally, verse 12 Verse 12 is the climax at the special moment. Every angel, every elder, every saint falls prostrate before him. The four great angels, the 24 elders, the hundreds of millions around the sea, and most of all us. And we join together to say with them in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength, honor and and glory and praise. That is awesome. Our God is awesome. Our God has surrounded himself with an awesome scene that we cannot comprehend how it can even exist. But it does. And Paul told the Romans, every day, as the rivers flow from the whole world at your feet and all the distractions pile into Rome, every day you have a choice to look at what is worthless, what is not going to last, or to get ready for the awesome scene where we get to stand and give an account of how much of our life wasn't distracted by the whole world in front of us. And we have spent 
more hours than we could ever count staring at a glowing screen and fewer hours than we can even remember staring into the face of God revealed in his word. Are you getting ready every day for the awesome throne of God? And are you getting ready to give an account? Paul asks. That's a question we should all answer. Let's all stand for a word of prayer. As we stand, two things I want to remind you of. One is there'll be counselors here in the front. If you want to just rededicate your life, refocus your life, get started. Sometimes you just need to talk to someone. Maybe you're not enrolled in heaven yet. When I read Hebrews 12, it says to, to the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Did you know you can't get to heaven unless you get a reservation here on earth before you go? And that's called being born again, trusting in Christ who died in our place, the one who makes us righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. We have to call out to him, asking for his payment on the cross to be credited to our account. If you've never done that, there are men and women here that would love to pray with you. If you're struggling with something or if you need prayer, that's number one. Number two, our reception. Uh, if you've never been to it, if you're new, or if you've been here forever and still never been to it, stop by and see what we do. And, and uh, we have a wonderful reception there. Tonight, we're going to practice prayer. Again, we're going to go into the tabernacle, and I'm going to show you how every one of Christ's I am's of the book of John, all seven of them, are reflected by the furniture of the tabernacle. And, and the tabernacle is a beautiful picture of how we approach the Lord in prayer. And we're going to have a wonderful time not only learning, but also actually doing prayer. Let's bow together. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege we have for some to come this morning, for some to come back tonight and practice what we're to practice all the time, but all of us to live every moment, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to live it for your glory. I pray we might to get ready for the awesome accounting before your throne we're going to offer. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.